Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, February the 7th on Radio NL. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you're all ready for a good weekend ahead. I have a good show lined up here for today. Coming up in just a few minutes, I'll be talking recycling and how some innovative solutions are taking place down in the lower mainland to try and reduce what is heading into the landfill. Yes, Return It has launched a new program aimed at keeping coffee cups out of the, the uh, dump. Each week, some 2.6 million disposable coffee cups end up in Vancouver landfills, and CEO Alan Langdon will discuss how they are trying to reduce those numbers. So that will be coming up in less than 10 minutes here. In the back half of the show, it is time to talk insurance. Yesterday, the B.C. government announced that it will be making some changes to ICBC. It is planning to severely restrict injured people's ability to sue at-fault drivers or ICBC after a crash. The government says the move will lower premiums by 20% or an average of $400 per driver. It also says the maximum care and treatment benefits for anyone injured in a crash will increase from $300,000 to at least $7.5 million. Premier John Horgan says he and Attorney General David Eby are tackling the financial crisis at the auto insurer. Since day one, I asked Minister Eby uh, to ensure that he was working to clean the mess up. And although we've made a number of changes to keep the company out of the red, people are still paying way too much for their auto insurance. And they're not getting the care they need if they're injured. Now, the uh, Trial Lawyers Association of BC says that it is deeply disappointed by yesterday's announcement, describing it as an alarming move that puts injured and vulnerable BC residents at risk. Uh, A sentiment that was also uh, um, doubled down by the Pacific Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada, Aaron Sutherland, says that it sounds like there's going to be no real option available to those who suffer any form of serious injury. For catastrophic injury victims, you know, people that are permanently disabled or in a wheelchair or things like this, that they will have no recourse um, but to accept whatever ICBC offers them um, is concerning, particularly given the lack of trust the public now has with our Crown Auto Insurer based on their record of late. Now, Sutherland says it seems that ICBC isn't able to deliver and believes it is time we look outside of ICBC for solutions, a sentiment that I think is expressed by many British British Columbians when talking about auto insurance. Uh, meanwhile, this is not overly surprising, but BC's former transportation minister thinks that ICBC will be a huge issue during the next provincial election. Uh, Todd, Spone, Todd Stone spoke with us yesterday and says there is a, a trust gap between British Columbians and this current NDP government, and the Kamloops South MLA says the Liberals will have questions about the changes when the legislature resumes next week. High degree of skepticism that this is truly going to prove out as it's being advertised. We will continue to hammer away at our belief that motorists deserve lower insurance rates today, not two years from now after an election campaign, and British Columbians deserve choice in auto insurance, which is available to residents in several other provinces. Now, Stone says the NDP had promised on numerous occasions to not bring in a no-fault insurance model, but says they've now broken 
that promise. So a lot of reaction to yesterday's news and changes and a lot of different opinions out there when it comes to this issue. There, there does seem to be many who are in favor of the changes in the sense that it will be reducing rates. Uh, so that's a good thing for, you know, the average driver. Most people are not probably going to be getting in any kind of serious collision where they end up with catastrophic injuries. And, um, you know, if that's the case, having a reduced rate seems like a good thing. But if anything were to happen, your options are sounding like they are going to become limited. So there are some concerns about what that could mean for those who, like I said, suffer serious injuries. So I'll be talking more about that at around the 35-minute mark of the show and to talking with uh, Acumen Law's Paul Doroshenko about all of that and get his thoughts on yesterday's changes. Um, I guess they're proposed changes. I should, I should probably throw that word in there. They are proposed at this time. Nothing is official as of yet, but they are moving in this direction. And to end off today's show, it is time for another edition of Friday Headlines. Yeah, a couple of things coming up here. Um, we're going to be talking about the riskiest states. I know it's the United States, but this is an interesting story with Valentine's Day just a week away. The top states for online dating. Yes, what are the riskiest online dating states to be in. I mean, based on cybercrime and STD rates, there's a list that has been compiled compiled to tell you which states maybe are a little bit uh, less appealing when it comes to swiping right. Also, we got uh, some concerns when it comes to people doing their chores. Yes, a woman out of Australia has been posting videos online on social media about her family refusing to clean up the house. She started taping money to things in order to get them to notice and hopefully pick up their, their stuff. Well, that doesn't seem to have been a plan that has worked out overly well. And also, we'll be talking about toddlers and just how uh, nice we are when we are little children. Yes, when we're about, uh, you know, in a year and a half old, it seems like uh, we're more willing to share and we're a little bit nicer to one another and something seems to happen to people as we grow up. So I'll be talking a little bit more about that in Friday Headlines to end off the show. But coming up next, we're going to be talking recycling, and I'll be joined by the CEO of Return It, Alan Langdon. So please stick around. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday. It is February the 7th, and thanks so much for tuning in. A BC beverage container recycler has launched a pilot project in the hopes of finding a way to recycle the millions of coffee cups that end up in landfills on a weekly basis. In Vancouver alone, there are more than 2.5 million coffee cups ending up in landfills each week. I am joined now by the CEO of Return It, Alan Langdon, to talk about some innovative ideas on how they're hoping to curb those numbers. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So let me just kind of start by getting a handle on how bad the situation is. I mean, can you describe how significant the numbers are when talking about coffee cups and just the issues that come with recycling them? Yeah, well, I think as you alluded to, you know, City of Vancouver has posted some numbers that, you know, over 2 million cups are ending up in landfill each week. Um, we know that one of the challenges is there isn't a consistent system for recycling cups in the commercial and public building sphere. And that's where over half the cups um, that we're talking about are, are being disposed of. And we know that there's some challenge with the cups themselves in terms of the amount of contamination. There's often liquid left in the cups as well as things like stir sticks and tea bags. And so we're hoping through this program to mitigate some of those issues and hopefully come up with a way to responsibly recycle this material. Perfect. So with that in mind, can you tell me a little bit about the pilot that's being launched here? Just exactly what is it and how is it going to work? Yeah, so we've installed five bins in five buildings in the downtown Vancouver area. 
uh, each of those bins uh, is set up with compartments. So there's a compartment where you can pour your liquid, and then there's slots for both the cup and the lid as well as the sleeve. And so we hope that by separating all that material, we're able to collect it as a clean stream, and then we're going to work to ensure that that material is recycled. So for the plastic lids, we've already got a good uh, local market in Merlin Plastics. And then for the cups, we're going to be looking at working with various paper mills to see if we can find a way to responsibly recycle those cups. So it really is uh, basically a bin that looks to take out each individual piece of of a coffee cup, whether it be the lid, the sleeve, the cup itself, and and they all kind of have their own um, container or compartment that they go into? Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and the big thing is is having that uh, liquid dr- um, drain. You know, we want it off. A lot of people won't finish their coffee by the time they're ready to deposit it. So being able to get rid of that liquid and keep keep moisture out and keep liquid out of the cups as we're collecting is a key thing. So with contamination being, I guess, one of the biggest issues, I guess, with recycling across the board, but but we're talking about coffee cups here. Um, I mean, if, if someone were in this case, say, to, you know, have a half empty or half full cup of coffee and they decided they wanted to throw it out and they put it all in, uh, you know, whatever the section is just for cups. I mean, is that a concern? Is that something that could happen? Do you have any kind of way to, to prevent that kind of thing from happening? Because, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to see one you know, person who has a contaminated cup potentially contaminate a bunch more that have already been properly recycled? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So there's really two things we're looking from the consumer perspective. One, what kind of participation level will we get? How many people will use the, use the bins and deposit their cups there? And then the second thing is, will consumers follow the instructions and use the bins properly? And will we see cups collected in the manner that we need them to be collected? Um, so it's a key learning that we're going to have in the pilot. And um, at the end of the six months, we're going to be publishing a report just talking about those learnings, talking about how many, you know, what kind of pickup we had or interest uh, participation we had from consumers and how well the bins worked in ensuring that the customers did, made the right choice and did the right thing. Okay. So and when we're looking at a six-month time frame, I guess, is there any particular reason for that number or it just seemed like half a year was probably a good opportunity to review it? Yeah, we just wanted to, you know, this hasn't been really done before, and so we wanted to get the pilot up off the ground and uh, see how it worked. And then we want to work with our partners, and we've got great partners in Tim Hortons, a and Metro Vancouver. And so we want to work with the partners to see how the program works. And then, you know, at the end of the pilot, if there's an opportunity to, you know, either um, continue the pilot or even expand the pilot, that's something we'd be interested in talking both with our current partners as well as other partners who might be interested in participating. Was there a particular reason why coffee cups was chosen? Is that just, you know, a a thing that you guys maybe looked at and and saw a lot of them on the streets or, um, you know, the fact that there are a lot of them ending up in landfills? I mean, I'm just trying to think of why, you know, maybe coffee cups were chosen over some kind of other container. Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of interest from both consumers and various local governments, in particular the city of Vancouver, uh, who have a proactive plan in terms of addressing cups. And so, you know, rather than just sit on the sidelines, we thought there was an opportunity to, you know, move forward, um, engage in some partnerships and see if we could come up with um, what hopefully will be a sustainable solution over the long term. Um, is, so with this in mind and the fact that you guys are looking to review the pilot in about six months' time, I mean, is there a, a possibility to expand this outside of Vancouver? Do you foresee this at some point, um, you know, being expanded to, you know, other places in Van- in uh, B.C., whether it be in the interior or, or Fraser Valley? Or, I mean, is there a possibility this could really uh, take off from here? 
Yeah, I don't think we want to get ahead of ourselves at this point. I think, you know, we're starting with five buildings. If the pilot works well and everyone uh, is happy with the results, you know, we may look to expand it to other parts of downtown Vancouver. Um, And then from there we decide, you know, if there's other parts of Vancouver, other parts of Metro Vancouver that we want to expand the pilot. So we want to, if we're going to grow it, we would grow it on an incremental basis. But, you know, for us right now, the first step is really to see, are the bins working? Is the system working? Are we able to recycle cups? If we can meet those objectives, then I think we'd look at, you know, what would make sense in terms of continuing or expanding the pilot. Uh, it makes that makes sense to me. Um, I guess how do you go about uh, measuring success for this? I mean, what what kinds of numbers are you going to be looking at to tell whether it has had a positive impact? I mean, uh, people will be aware of them. I assume there's some sort of education process that is sort of taking place to make people aware of these bins and where they are located and how to go about using them. Um, but just you know, what 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 kind of numbers would deem success? Do you have, have you even looked at maybe what a target would look like, or are you just sort of playing the wait and see game? Well, in terms of the metrics for the program, I think, you know, number one is consumer participation. Are people using the bins? Uh, if they're using the bins, that'll be the first measure of success. The other thing that was really driving us is can we find um, appropriate recycling solution for the cups? Um, so the cups require a special process to remove that layer of uh, plastic from the fiber. And so we don't have any mills in this general area that currently do that. So that's a big part of this project. Can we find an option for recycling those cups? And then if we can find options are those options available to work with us at scale? So if those options can recycle cups, could they do it if we had, you know, 50 bins as opposed to five? So those are kind of the three things we're looking at to determine the long-term viability of this project. Uh, So you don't have anyone that can actually accept these cups to be able to, you know, remove the plastic from the, uh, the paper, whatever the terminology would be at this point? Uh, there's markets in North America, primarily uh, in eastern Canada or the Midwest of the U.S., and there's also markets in uh, Asia, particularly South Korea. Um, so obviously those will be you know, some markets that we'll work with, but we're also going to look at are there mills closer to home, uh, be it you know, in Washington, Oregon, or other parts of B.C. that we might be able to work with to find a long-term solution for managing these cups. If, if at the end of the day we have to send cups to other parts of North America, that's fine. If we can find viable solutions that are close to home, that's something we'd be interested in. Okay, so um, still working on, on finding out more local, I guess, content of, of someone who Absolutely. can go about doing this work. Yeah. Um, yep. Perfect. I mean, um, and, you, and you had said this, I think, earlier, but um, in terms of lids, you said there's already a pretty good program in place when it comes to coffee cup lids? Yeah, well, we've had a partner, Merlin Plastics, we've worked with for 25 years just on the beverage container side. So they've been recycling our plastic bottles all that time and they recycle a range of materials. So we've already um, connected with them and they'll be managing the lids and uh, that those shouldn't be a problem. So uh, that was an easy one for us. Um, just having the ability to have those lids recycled here domestically makes total sense. Perfect. And I just wanted to ask you on kind of a general sense, since contamination does seem to be the biggest issue when it comes to the recycling industry in general, and, and clearly with, with this particular pilot contamination is one of the things you're targeting. Um, I mean, is this just a matter of education? I mean, people, are, I assume, are, um, you know, just for example, you know, you get a, a pizza from somewhere and it gets all the cheese melted onto the box, and that's basically becomes unusable in terms of a recycling product, from what I understand. Uh, I mean, what, what can be done to sort of combat this issue on a, on a you know, sort of uh, across the board? Is there anything that can be done outside of just educating the public, or is that really all it comes down to? So 
I think, you know, if we're going to improve contamination, I think part of it is going to be the system. So, you know, part of what we're doing with these bins is trying to make it as easy and straightforward as possible. You need to separate the various components of the cup to make sure we can get the right recycling outcome. I think you're going to see the same thing in curbside. For example, that pizza box you talked about, unless there's a heavy amount of, of contamination, like a lot of leftover cheese, uh, it should be easily recyclable. Um, but, you know, we're, we're undergoing a big change in terms of there was a system in place for a long time where material, particularly paper material, was being sent over to China, and it was a relatively easy market to go to, and that's just no longer available. Mm-hmm. And so as we enter this new paradigm where you're having to send to local markets and there's much more stringent quality requirements, I think it's going to um, you know, force everyone to rethink not just consumer education but the systems we use and make sure that the systems we use are pretty simple and straightforward and encourage people and, and nudge people to do the right thing in terms of separating material where required. Um with that in mind, um, you know, I'm just curious, is, is that a, a positive, do you think, that, uh, you know, we might have to look at these local markets that might have a little more stringent um, rules around how, how or what materials they are accepting? Do you, do you view that as a good thing, even though it might end up being more expensive, potentially? But, you know, I mean, I, I, I just assume that, um, you know, things being looked at a little more closely and, and, and paid a little more attention to should ultimately be seen as a good thing. Yeah, I think over the long term, uh, it's probably the it's probably going to be a positive thing, right? And that we're going to hopefully develop more local markets for this material. And so, anything that we're making, we're going to be able to have managed here. And it'll also, you know, make us rethink, you know, just the whole system we have in terms of is is all this stuff necessarily stuff that we absolutely need, or can we rethink that relationship as well, in terms of do we need all this material? But uh, you know, it is going to be a transition, and certainly, you know, there's lots of organizations that are struggling right now with recycling just because it is having an impact on costs. Um, but probably over the long term, it'll be the right thing. But I'm, I'm sensitive for a lot of companies involved in recycling. There's going to be a lot of pain uh, to get to that point. Uh, just curious as well, while I have you on the phone here. Um, yeah. I know, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that deposits had increased for um, for cans. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, sort of how that's gone, if you've seen any sort of uptake in people returning or, you know, just how that process has gone since that uh, deposit was increased. Yeah, great question. So um, I don't know. I think it's still probably too early. We've definitely seen some uptick, but, you know, we want to see like a few months or a year or two before we really understand the impact. Um, but, you know, it's from a public standpoint, it's been re- it's been received really well from the public. I think there's been a general understanding that we needed to make that change. And so the change has been well received and, and the whole transition was pretty seamless. So we're we're really happy with how it's gone so far, and we'll hopefully be able to report out in a few months and just, you know, what kind of success we've had in terms of how it's uh, moved the recovery rate. Well, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time here. I really appreciate it, and I hope this pilot works, and, you know, maybe something like this could make its way towards us here in Kamloops in the not-too-distant future. So, so thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Jeff. That was the CEO of Return It, Alan Langdon, talking about a new coffee cup recycling program being run in Vancouver. Uh, there are some 2.6 million coffee cups ending up in Vancouver landfills on a weekly basis. So maybe this will at least put a dent into that figure. Coming up, ICBC. I'm sure you've all heard the news about the changes that are coming to insurance in the province. And I will be joined by Acumen Law's Paul Doroshenko to talk a little bit more about how this could impact lawyers and their clients after the break. So please stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com.
Welcome back to the show here on Friday the 7th, and thanks so much for tuning in. The province announced yesterday that it will severely be restricting people's ability to sue at-fault drivers or the Insurance Corporation of BC after a crash. It says this move will lower premiums by about 20% or an average of $400 per driver while increasing maximum benefits to about $7.5 million. But the Trial Lawyers Association of BC is saying that the government is taking away those legal rights of residents while protecting ICBC management who created the mess in the first place, to talk more about the issue and what potential consequences are, uh, I'm joined on the phone now by Acumen Laws, Paul Doroshenko. Paul, how you doing? I'm good. Good morning. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a bunch. Uh, I have your calendar at my desk. I see you every day, but uh, I don't think we've ever had you on my show here, so it's uh, good to chat finally. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. <laughs> All right, so let's just start. Uh, ICBC, uh, as I mentioned, the province is basically bringing in this no-fault insurance, but for whatever reason, the province is refusing to call it that, but that's another issue. Uh, just what were your initial thoughts when you saw yesterday's announcement? I mean, just, you know, as, as a lawyer, sort of, what was your initial reaction? Uh, well, it's a declaration of failure. It's a declaration of failure. They made changes uh, when they came in. They said that they didn't, they, you know, they made a promise uh, in the election that they would not introduce no-fault insurance. Uh, they made changes making things go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. They tried to uh, eliminate the uh, experts that you could have in a case. You know, if you've got somebody who's got a brain injury and a spinal injury, uh, you're going to have two different experts. They wanted it to be limited to one. Uh, these things, they, you know, obviously didn't work, and it's a failure, and it's a, it seems to be just a failure of the, of the ICBC model. Uh, and that's the thing that struck me. But, of course, the biggest concern is that people with severe injuries and severe loss, loss of wage, are no longer going to be able to be compensated uh, in the way that they have in the past. And the way that they have in the past has recognized that these are the appropriate settlement amounts. Yeah. So, I mean, people are basically at the mercy of, of what ICBC is willing to pay out at this point in time, right? I mean, there's no real legal recourse that people can take uh, if they're unhappy with their compensation. Yeah, in, unless the other driver who is at fault, if they find that other driver at fault, because there's no motivation to find anybody at fault anymore, but unless the other driver has been charged with a convicted of a criminal offense and there's some sort of alluding to a, maybe they've got a really bad driving record or something like that, I, unless that's the case... You can't sue. Uh, and, you know, we have to remember, like, they're blaming lawyers, right? It's, it's the lawyer blame game. It's always easy to blame the lawyers, but the lawyer blame game. If the amount of the claim is worth $100,000, and that's what the court says it is, uh, you know, the lawyer gets $33,000. That's the maximum that the lawyers can get. And that comes out of the person's claim. It's not like the court awarding extra, an extra 33000 to cover the lawyer's legal fees. So, you know, it's the recognition of we know what the, the, what the claims are roughly worth because there's been lots of litigation about it. Uh, and the government's just basically said, you're not worth, you know, you British Columbians are not worth this, um, what the courts have said you're worth. Uh, you're not worth the injury. We're just going to decide mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of, um, of saving money and, and an ideological desire to maintain this uh, basically socialist insurance system. Uh, there are a ton of cases out there, you know, where somebody maybe gets in a, a minor fender bender, whatever the case may be. It doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. Um, and, and, you know, you, you maybe exchange insurance information and then you go about your day. But, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, people start feeling the effects of a collision days later and it could lead to maybe some chronic issues that, uh, you know, are a result of something that felt minor at the time. But days later, you realize maybe is a little more serious than you initially thought. I mean, is someone going to be 
out of luck in that case? I mean, when they're trying to, um, you know, go about improving their compensation? Because, I mean, it wasn't a criminal offense, so you can't sue anyone. So, I mean, I'm just, do you have any idea how that potentially would work? We're going to have to wait and see the, you know, the way that they implement this. They're going to implement it with legislation, right? They have to implement it with legislation. Uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see the legislation that they implement. But think about this, like the, the pain and suffering and lost wages part is the, the, the major portion of what ends up being in a settlement. And that's the part that they're saying you're not going to get. So if you're paying $4,200 a month for a mortgage and you've got to, you know, earn $8,000 a month or $6,000 a month to keep your family going, um, and you're in a, uh, you're in a collision where you can't work for four months, um, you know, they're just looking at some sort of capped amount that they're going to pay, uh, and it's going to be a maximum amount and it might be 1500 bucks a month or something like that. You know, they're, they're going to set it. It's not going to be a situation that is, you know, one person is in this circumstance, another person is in this circumstance, which is how the courts have recognized you, you properly assess damages. Um, you know, this is just going to be ICBC deciding what they think they should give you. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, plays out in the in the legislature moving forward. I mean, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, the, the opposition's going to let this go through just as it is. Um, but, of course, uh, NDP does have the ability to really pass this through if they have the Greens' help. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how that debate unfolds. Uh, curious for you, you know, as someone who obviously drives a vehicle, I mean, you know, they are proposing a 20%, 20% reduction in rates. I mean, that, that sounds great. But uh, for you as a driver, I mean, what are your concerns here? I mean, is that 20%? Is that $400? on average um, enough for for you as as just a driver to to be happy with what's happening or do you have concern that if anything were to ever happen i mean uh, you know god forbid that you're kind of out of luck well that's the idea of having insurance right you know the idea of having insurance is to protect you when that bad thing happens uh, it's a bit of a gamble you you hope the bad thing doesn't happen you know the the accident i was in an accident in uh, end of november i was rear-ended i'm still suffering injuries from it uh, you hope it doesn't happen i'll pay the four hundred dollars in the hopes that i can be compensated i mean i you buy life insurance not you know desperately wanting to die uh, but you buy it on a, a bit of a gamble to protect your family um, and this is the same thing, you know, I think a lot of British Columbians would be, you know, when they sit, sit and think and do the math, would realize that the few hundred dollars more uh, that they're going to pay is providing them with, what do they want? Insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Actually insuring the loss, actually insuring the risk. And, you know, you get back to this issue of uh, the fact that you can sue somebody if they are driving terribly, if they're convicted of dangerous driving. But you can't sue if, they, if the accident was, like, negligent driving. Uh, how is that logical? Mm-hmm. How is that logical? You're injured, you get a spinal injury, okay? You can't sue if the person drove, you know, carelessly, but if they drove in a criminal manner, dangerously, just slightly elevated, then you can sue? You know, it, it, it's, things like that are going to, I think, get under the skin of people fairly quickly when they see how this plays out. Uh, and it's not something, you know, that the ICBC was uh, created, invented by the NDP in the 1970s. Uh, we don't really have a universal right to car insurance. It's not like something in the Charter of Rights or something like that. We, we basically have an accepted universal right to health care, but to car insurance, no. Uh, and there's other models, and, and this is really going to provide the ammunition for the B.C. Liberals next time they're in power. And it's just a matter of time, it may not, you know, not necessarily the next election, but the one after that, to be able to justify private privatizing it. And I really think like politically, uh, you know, this is 
spells the end of ICBC. It's it's picking its death date, uh, and it's probably you know another year of the NDP and maybe a re-election of the NDP five years down the road. We're going to look at the end of ICBC. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be uh, excuse me an interesting process to see how this plays out. That was um, a lot to sorry. unpack. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you just caught me off just, guard. Now I'm coughing. Thinking, thinking about the political implications of this because people are going to be looking at it and they're going to be saying to themselves, well, this is not what we signed up for when we agreed to ICBC. The benefit of ICBC was supposed to be that everybody has insurance and everybody's going to be properly compensated, right? Yeah. That was the reason it was sold to the citizens of British Columbia back in Dave Barrett's government in the 1970s. And if we're looking at it and we're saying people aren't being properly compensated and this is costing us more than, uh, you know, what they might be paying for in Ontario, uh, you know, the argument is going to be there and it's going to provide all the ammunition that the, that the Liberals, the Liberals have wanted to privatize it since the start. Uh, it's going to provide everything that they need to be able to justify that politically. Um, you, I just want to ask you one more question because you kind of brought this up to me yesterday. I mean, if you are involved in some kind of a collision, there's probably some people that might uh, feel better off to, you know, if, if it's not looking like it could be a, a criminal offense that's going to um, be handed out as a result, uh, you know, it might almost be worth it in some cases to call the police and, and accuse someone of maybe, you know, having alcohol in their breath or something along those lines just to at least, uh, you know, maybe leave the option open for a potential potential case there's the motivation to lie um, and to say that the driving was worse than it was or that the symptoms are worse than they were Um, there's the you know unfortunate thing that happens to us is that we tend to color evidence uh, in our own favor and if coloring evidence in your own favor means making the other driver look like they are impaired uh, you know there will be people who end up charged with impaired driving based on on witness statements I mean if I was in an accident right now I would want the police to assess the other driver Right. So I'd be phoning in any accident. I wouldn't, you know, because I want them to come test them. If they come out, test the person on a roadside breath tester, they blow a fail. Uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm going to be properly compensated. If they don't, if the police don't come, up, come out, then that evidence is lost and I don't get anything. So, and there's lots of times that people are charged with impaired driving without any breath tests, uh, just on the basis of, of statements of the, uh, of witnesses. Uh, or dangerous driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so there's a there's a motivation now to to augment, fabricate, uh, you know, uh, make it sound like the other person's driving was something that uh, that enters the criminal realm because your chances of getting a fair settlement are that much higher. Yeah. And that's a really unfortunate thing because we'll see people who are wrongly charged, wrongly accused. You know, you go to court uh, and you've got a civilian witness in an impaired driving case. Judges tend to really want to defer to that evidence. Uh, you know, you've got a civilian who shows up and testifies. Judges really tend to defer to that evidence. It's not always accurate evidence, right? It's mm-hmm. not, you know, you're describing what took place at the circumstance. Well, this is unfortunately where you're going to see people who I, I suspect, especially in refusal cases, where people will end up convicted of criminal offenses when they didn't commit any criminal offense. But it'll, it's, the, it's the method of getting to that final point, which is a fair settlement. Well, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time here. I really appreciate you coming on and, and speaking to this, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out moving forward. It's definitely a, a story that we'll be all watching pretty closely. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Awesome. That was Paul Doroshenko, criminal lawyer with Acumen Law, talking about the changes to ICBC as the province brings in what is essentially no-fault insurance. The government has said the corporation was floundering in debt, but now this new system will save more than $1.5 billion in the first full year, while... 
if this legislation passes. We shall see about that. We've all heard about how things would improve in the past, and, you know, we would save money on rates, and corporations, uh, you know, would save money, yada, 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 and it hasn't really happened, so we'll see if that's the case here this time around. Coming up next, I'm going to be going over some Friday headlines to get you ready for the weekend. More Jeff Andrea Show coming up after this. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Friday. I hope you're all ready for the weekend. And if not, well, hopefully I can help get you in the mood with some fun Friday headlines. And now, Friday headlines with Jeff Andreas. All right, here we got Valentine's Day coming up in less than a week, or actually exactly one week, I should say. And one of the headlines here today is the riskiest states for online dating and the safest. So if you've been hitting up those apps, your Tinder, your Hinge, your Bumble, whatever app you're swiping on and trying to find that special person to be your Valentine with Valentine's Day, like I said, just seven days away. Well, if you're heading south of the border, here is something to keep in mind. There's an annual study that looks at the safest and most dangerous states in the U.S. for online dating. The results are based on how likely you are to get scammed, how much money scammers have stolen, and also each state's STD rates. Vermont was the safest state two years in a row, but Maine is the number one this time around, and Alaska ranked last again as the least safe state. I'll be honest, I did not expect Alaska to be a place for scamming, although I can picture it as a place where that other issue could be a problem. The five safest states for online dating in 2020 are Maine, West Virginia, Vermont, Kentucky, and New Hampshire, while the five riskiest states for online dating are Alaska, Nevada, California, North Carolina, and Maryland. For some reason, seeing the state that houses the wonderful city of Las Vegas as a place where people are looking to scam someone or as a place where STDs may be spreading a bit faster, it's not all that surprising. Yeah, so be warned, swipers, and protect yourself from scams and STDs. Neither would make for a very happy Valentine's Day. All right, well, let's move on, shall we? It's time for a new headline. So this is a story about getting kids to do their chores, and perhaps this isn't just about kids, but it's actually about a little bit more than that. So a woman in Australia was sick of her family not picking up trash around their house, so she thought it would be a good idea to start taping cash to things around the house that needed to be cleaned up. So she went about her business, taping money to things like an empty toilet paper roll or a piece of paper and put them face down and waited to see if her family would actually find that money. You know, that's a great way to help motivate people to do chores, right? I know uh, if someone said, uh, you know, I'll give you a few dollars to clean up your place, I'd be more likely to do it. But uh, that's a whole other issue. Anyway, so after six days, this woman had uh, started taping, you know, to see... If these things were going to ever be cleaned up, she was filming out on a daily basis, taking videos, watching and seeing, you know, what would be picked up and what would be cleaned and how much money could potentially be collected by your kids. Well, six days later, they hadn't picked up anything. Now her post on Facebook about her experiment is starting to go viral. So this woman decided it would be a finally a good idea to clue in her husband. And his response? Well, he said, I should have cleaned that stuff up, but he couldn't spoil it for the kids. That was his... Uh, 
his claim anyway, he actually ended up saying, quote, I actually left it there on purpose because I knew you were trying to teach the kids a lesson, end quote. So, um, yeah, even the spouse was unable to go about being clean and neat and tidy. Uh, but money, I mean, now that he knows there's money attached to some of these things, maybe he's more likely to go about picking things up. And uh, I still don't know if the kids have actually cleaned anything up yet. So be watching to see her, her next post and see if anything does ever come of it. I know, uh, like I said, if there's money on the things that I'm supposed to throw away, I'm probably more likely to uh, throw it out. All right, well, let's move on, shall we? It's time for a new headline. All right, well, let's wrap things up here with a little study. A new study gave toddlers the opportunity to eat a piece of fruit. Someone dropped or help out and give it back. A team of researchers at the University of Washington did an experiment with 100 toddlers, all of whom were about 19 months old, a year and a half or so. A researcher they'd never met before sat behind a table and pretended to accidentally drop a piece of fruit, like a cut-up strawberry or a grape or something along those lines, into a tray on the ground in front of the toddlers. So he could not reach this fruit, but each kid was able to. The researcher then acted like he was struggling to reach out for that fruit to pick it up again. And the point was to see if kids would help him or take the fruit and eat it for themselves. And in the end, more kids decided that they would actually prefer to help out. Researchers tried it again right before snack time when they thought kids would be a little bit more hungry and more willing to be a bit selfish when it comes to eating that fruit. And even then, almost 40% gave the fruit back instead of eating it for themselves. So that's a pretty good margin. Um, so, I mean, this doesn't mean that altruism is totally something that we're born with. It's also something that, uh, you know, we do in fact learn. This study, for example, um, found that kids with siblings were more likely to help out, most likely because, you know, they learn to be helpful from watching their older siblings um, at home or maybe their parents, you know, with uh, the fact that they had to share more with somebody else in the household made them more likely to be a little more uh, forgiving or, or uh, and, you know, generous with uh, that, that fruit that was being dropped in front of them. So there was some factors at play here but i think the real point of this at least for me was you know if you're a, a bit of a jerk of a person chances are you weren't always that way so perhaps just maybe there's still time to revert back to that childlike state and treat others how you want to be treated the old golden rule right i mean we were clearly something that we have instilled in us when we're kids but sometimes somewhere along the way we tend to lose that uh, that thought and that uh, that, uh, you know, feeling that we have for other people. Sometimes, you know, we just turn into big jerks, but we can always go back and become better people. So there you go. This has been Friday Headlines. Friday Headlines with Jeff Andreas. All right. Well, I hope you guys are all ready for the weekend now. We got uh, just a few hours left in the workday before we can all uh, get ready and celebrate a weekend that is ahead. Uh, here on uh, now, we got some uh, hockey action coming up for you later this evening. Of course, the uh, Kamloops Blazers are on the road to meet the Victoriaville. Um, sorry, Victoriaville. Victoria. They're down there to play the Victoria Royals. So John Keane will have that call for you around 7.05 here tonight. Uh, the Victoriaville. Why do I keep saying that? Victoria is uh, second place in the division and uh, sitting about a 11 points back in two games here coming up against the Blazers here this weekend tonight and tomorrow. It's a big little home series in Victoria. Uh, they're trying to make up some ground and push the Blazers for uh, that top spot in the BC division. But uh, if the Blazers can come away with four points here, uh, that almost feels like it might be impossible down the stretch. So it uh, should be a, a good weekend of hockey action for the Blazers. Uh, so stay tuned here on Radio NL to hear all of that local hockey action. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I'd like to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time 
while it lasted. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend, and I'll be back here on Monday at 9.